I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles for for one last time to John chapter 6. We've been looking at this chapter for the past four Sundays, and this morning we're going to take one final look at it. We have some unfinished business, namely in verses 60 through 71. And you may well remember that in verses 25 through 40 of this chapter, the Lord Jesus has something to say to the crowd. And then in verses 41 through 59, he has something to say to the Jews, that is the Jewish religious leaders. And now in verses 60 through 71, the Lord Jesus has something to say to two more groups of people. Uh, First of all, he speaks to the disciples In the broadest sense of the word, disciples, followers of the Lord Jesus, those who claimed to be followers of the Lord Jesus. And then he says something to the disciples in the narrow sense of the word, the twelve, the twelve disciples. And so I invite you to follow along as I read this portion of God's word for us. Again, that's John chapter six, beginning in verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe, and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back. And no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. And so we have two conversations in these verses. Christ has already spoken to the crowds. He's already addressed the Jewish religious leaders. Now, firstly, in verses 60 through 66, he has something to say to all of his followers, his disciples, in the broadest, loosest, sense of the word. They come to him with a question. Verse 60. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? What are they talking about? Well, they are referring to the conversation that Jesus has in verses 41 through 59 with the Jews. That is the Jewish religious leaders. You might remember that they come to him essentially saying the same thing. This is a hard saying. They begin grumbling among themselves. They begin questioning. They begin seeking to undermine the claims of the Lord Jesus. He has stood before them. He has said, I am the bread of heaven. I am the bread that has come down of heaven. And he has invited 
invited them to feed on him five times. In verses 53 through 59, the Lord Jesus says to be saved, to inherit eternal life, you must feed on me. You must eat my flesh. You must drink my blood. The Jews are confused. The Jews don't want anything to do with the claims and the invitations of the Lord Jesus. And now we find in verse 60 that the disciples find themselves in precisely the same state. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And the Lord Jesus challenges them beginning in verse 61 all the way through to verse 65. And basically, he challenges them just as he challenged the Jews before them to the Jews grumbling. The Lord Jesus points out in verse 44, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. In other words, the reason you are having difficulty in understanding the significance of the signs, the reason you are having difficulty in understanding my claims. In short, the reason why you refuse to believe in me is because you are unwilling. You are dead in your trespasses and sins and no man can come to me again. Verse 44. Unless the father who sent me draws him. And basically the Lord Jesus now says the same thing to his disciples. And so he says in verses 61 through 62, he says, look it, you don't believe that I have come down from heaven. You think this is a hard saying. I am the true bread of heaven and you must feed on me. You must eat my flesh. You must drink my blood. You think that is a difficult saying and you refuse to believe. Well, look it and understand you too will refuse to believe when I have ascended on high. Just like you don't believe that I have descended from heaven, neither will you believe when I have ascended back to heaven. And here is the reason why you will not believe. Verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. In your natural state, in your carnal state, you are incapable of discerning what I say. It is the spirit that must impart life. It is the spirit who must give understanding. And let me remind you, verse 65, that this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Well, they've had enough. They are... Simply put, flabbergasted. Verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. This is a hard saying. This is a downright offensive statement. We do not understand. We do not agree with it. We do not like it. And so from that moment forward, many of those who had claimed to be his followers turned back and no longer walked with him. And then in verse 67, the Lord Jesus has something to say to the fourth and final group, the twelve. He turns to them and he asks them point blank. Do you want to go away as well? Where's the crowd? They've disappeared. Where are the Jewish religious leaders? They've walked away in a huff. Where are all of my so-called disciples and followers? This is a hard saying, and they too have walked away rejecting me. What about you? You twelve. Do you want to go away as well? And then there's a response. Simon Peter steps to the foreground, and he answers verse 68. He answers Christ's question with a question. Lord, to whom shall we go? Where will we go? 
You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We've seen the signs. We have seen the wonders that you have performed. We have seen miracles that defy all explanation, human explanation. We have heard your words. We have heard your claims. And we have come to believe. And here is what we believe. That you are indeed the Holy One of God. And yet the Lord Jesus now utters the most sobering of statements. Verse 70. Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet even one of you is a devil. The crowds have left me. The Jewish religious leaders won't touch me with a ten foot pole. Even those who have been following me for months, perhaps even years, claiming to be my disciples, they are now abandoning me, turning their backs on me. They're absolutely nowhere to be seen. Peter, you have just uttered a delightful, most wonderful truth statement. But understand this, even among you twelve, even though I have chosen you, handpicked you, selected you to be my disciples, even among you twelve, there's a devil. He spoke of Judas, verse 71, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. I want to know. I'm not going to speak for you, but as I read these verses, as I read the entire chapter, I want to know this. Here's what I want to know. I want to know why the disciples, excluding Judas, so we have the 11, why these disciples get it. I want to know, I want an answer to this question. Why is it that these 11 see what the crowds do not see? Why is it that they grasp what the Jewish religious leaders never comprehend? Why is it that they have taken to heart what the rest of Christ's followers have rejected? And why is it that these eleven have come to believe that Christ is the Holy One of God, while even one of their number, Judas, ultimately will reject the Lord Jesus Christ and betray Him? Why these Eleven. That's what I want to know. I want an answer to that question. I want to know what sets these eleven apart. What accounts for their faith? Why is it they get what nobody else gets? The answer to that question is found in what we call the call of God. What we refer to as God's call. Now, pay careful attention when we speak of God's call and when we get into Scripture and we try to discern the call of God, we must, we must, and let me say again, we must distinguish between two calls in Scripture. There is what we call, what we designate, what we refer to as the general call in Scripture, general call. Listen carefully to this. It is, the general call is, Christ's voice in the proclamation of His Word 
by the preacher. It is heard with the ear. Right now, whether you realize it or not, you are hearing the general call. Right now, you have heard God's word read. You are hearing God's word opened up. You are hearing God's word declared. You are hearing God's word proclaimed to you. Accompanying that word is a general call. Whosoever will may come. Come unto me, declares the Lord Jesus, all who are weary and heavy laden, all who are conscious of their sin, come to me and I will give you rest. Or as we've heard him cry time and time again in this chapter, come to me, abide in me, rest in me, believe in me, feed on me. That is the general call. It goes out to all men all women in all places at all times without any discrimination, without any exception. It is Christ's voice in the proclamation of His Word by the preacher that is heard with the human ear. But there is secondly in Scripture what we call the effectual call. That invitation that general call goes out. And we've seen it in this chapter. What I want to know is, why is it made effectual in the hearts of some? Why is it that these 11 disciples have responded? Why is it that these 11 disciples have come to faith? How is it that these 11 disciples, as led by Peter, are able to declare we have seen the signs. We have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Well, this is the fruit of the effectual call. Let me remind you of the general call. Christ's voice in the proclamation of his word by the preacher heard with the ear. The effectual call. Christ's voice in the application of His Word by the Spirit. Heard, not merely with the ear, but with the soul. Heard with the soul. That is the difference between the general call over here, Christ's voice in the proclamation of His Word, heard with the ear, and the effectual call over here, Christ's voice through the application of His Word by the Spirit of God, heard not merely with the ear, but actually with the soul. On another occasion, it's recorded in Matthew chapter 16, the Lord Jesus, well into His ministry, turns to the disciples and He just throws one of those questions out there. Uh, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? Do you remember that? Who do people think that I am? Oh, and there are a number of theories. Oh, some say you are John the Baptist risen from the dead. Some think you're Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets and on and on and on and on. But simply put, no one believes you are the Christ. There are all these different ideas, all these different notions, all these different theories. And then Christ says to them, but who do you, you right there, you disciples, who do you say that I am? And again, Peter steps to the forefront. And you remember his great declaration, you are the Christ. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
Now, what's even more interesting than that, I think, is Christ's response. Do you remember how Christ responds to Peter's great declaration? Blessed. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Why? For flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Why does he call him Simon Barjona? His name's Peter. In John chapter 1, we read that his real name was Simon Barjona, which means Simon, son of John. But when the Lord Jesus called Peter to follow him, he changed his name from Simon, son of John, to Peter. Well, why at this juncture, well into his ministry, the name has already been changed months, if not years previous. Why does he now revert to his name, Simon, son of John? Why doesn't he say, blessed are you, Peter? Do you understand my question? Why? Why does he revert to blessed are you, Simon Barjona? I think implicit to that is a reminder that the Lord Jesus is simply reminding Peter of who he is. Listen here, Peter. I want you to understand this. I want you to get it, and I want you to get it good. You are Simon Barjona. You are Simon, son of John. You are a mere man. You are a mere mortal. Let me get even more graphic. You are but dust. And Simon, son of Barjona, you have just entered into the realm of the sublime. You have just uttered the mystery of godliness. God manifest in the flesh. You have just declared with human lips you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Get it, Simon Barjona, and get it good. It was not flesh and blood that revealed this to you. You have not understood this, Simon Barjona. You have not grasped this because you are particularly clever. You're not. Not because you're particularly intelligent. No, you fail on that one too. Nor are you necessarily that smart. It is nothing about you that has set you apart, enabling you to grasp this wondrous truth, to enter into the realm of the sublime. No, Peter, you are blessed. That means you are privileged. God's countenance shines upon you because, Peter, you have come to the realization of this great truth because my Father in heaven has revealed it to you. That isn't revelation in terms of general revelation, that which God reveals, reveals excuse me, in creation. Nor is it necessarily special revelation, what God reveals in Scripture. No, this is God's work of illumination whereby the Spirit of God impresses Himself upon the soul of man, the mind and the heart, enabling Him to understand truth, come to faith, and declare this greatest truth of truths. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is known as the effectual call. Christ's voice in the application of His Word by the Spirit, as heard with the soul. What I want to do with you today, this morning, is consider three features, three characteristics of this call. And I ask you to pay careful attention to these. I'm going to, I'm going to work through them. 
And then and then I pray the spirit of God will impress them upon us. And then I want to drive home six points of application, uh, a sixfold response that if we understand what the effectual call is, if we really grasp it and have taken it to heart, we won't be able to help but, but respond. And I want to describe that response in a six-fold manner. But for now, three features of the effectual call. The need is this. And you kids, this is where you fill in that first blank. Number one, bold print. The need for the effectual call. The need. And so the question we're seeking to answer here is simply this. Why is it necessary? Why the need for it? Why isn't the general call sufficient? Why isn't the, the simple proclamation by a preacher, uh, the simple proclamation of God's word by a preacher heard with the human ear, why isn't that sufficient? Why is it that the Lord Jesus says in verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him? Again in verse 65, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Well, why, why is that the case? Why is it that no one can come to God apart from this drawing, apart from this calling, unless it has been granted by God? Why is it that the general call is insufficient? The answer is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit. Why? Because they're foolishness. They're folly to him. And he isn't able to understand them. Why? Because they are spiritually appraised. In other words, the natural man, that is the state in which we are born, a state of depravity, fallen in sin, with a sinful, fallen human nature, that this state of, of carnality or the natural state of man, we are unable to grasp spiritual truth. Apart from the Spirit of God. That's why the Lord Jesus says, returning to our text, verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. And so that we walk around, we walk around with these blinders on when it comes to God and God's truth and God's revelation and eternal verities, eternal truths. We have these blinders on. We're in a stupefied state whereby we're, we're unable to grasp the, the significance of these truths, unable to see the verity of these truths, and therefore most unwilling to accept these truths and believe them and embrace them as ours and personalize them. A.W. Pink writes, as a person who lacks the power of seeing, that is a blind person, is incapable of being impressed by the strongest rays of light reflected upon him and can't form any real ideas of the appearance of things. So the natural man, by reason of this blindness of mind, is unable to discern the nature of heavenly things. And so the effectual call is needed. The effectual call is necessary. Why? Because no man can come to the Lord Jesus. And why can no man come to the Lord Jesus? 
It is because in our natural carnal state, we lack the necessary spiritual discernment to perceive the truth that stands there staring us straight in the face. Now, I know that's controversial. It is. That's very controversial. It's controversial for a whole host of reasons. And I'm not, I'm not going to try to address all the reasons this morning. This is going to come up again. We, we can't get away from it in John's Gospel. It's going to come up again in chapter 8. It's going to come up again in chapter 10. It's going to come up again in chapter 17. It comes up wherever you turn. You can run, but you cannot hide from it. It comes up time and time and time again. And I suppose, I suppose my own struggle with it and the struggle most people have with these verses, no man can come to me unless the Father draws him, unless the Father grants it, is this. Uh, we, we reason to ourselves, well, well, that means, that means I don't have free will. That's usually what, what we hear, what I hear, what I wrestled with for years. Well, well if I can't come to God, in the, in the way I am, in the state I am, if that isn't an option for me, then that means I don't have, I don't have free will. And that can't be true, because that would then make me a robot. And if I'm merely a robot, then I can't be held responsible for what I do and I don't do. And if I can't be held responsible for what I do and I don't do, then God really has no right judging me. That would be totally unfair. Let me ask you three questions. And don't blurt out your answer. Just tuck them away in the back of your mind. Three questions. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. Again, it's going to come up again and again and again. But I hope these three questions will at the very least set us out on the right path. And particularly for anybody who here this morning who, who, who struggles with this, that these three questions maybe will, will open the door and, and broaden your thinking and help you bring, help bring you along to, to understand what scripture, scripture declares about our carnal natural state. The first question is this, and think about it before you answer it. Um, can God sin? Your three seconds are up. I hope and pray you answered no. Can God sin? Well, no, no, he can't. Here's my question. Does that mean he doesn't have free will? Of course God has free will. But you just told me he can't sin. Well, he can't sin. Why? Because he doesn't want to sin. God cannot do that which is contrary to his nature. He cannot do that which is contrary to who and what he is. Morally perfect. And holy. And so when we say God can't sin, we don't mean that God doesn't have free will. We don't mean that there's a force greater than God preventing him from doing something he wants to do. No, we're simply declaring the nature of God. That God cannot sin because he does not want to sin. Question number two. Can Satan repent? Three seconds are up. I don't even know those one and a half seconds. I hope the answer is no. I hope that's your answer. No. Well, does that mean the devil doesn't have free will? No, that's that's, that's not what we mean. That's not what we're saying. We're not saying that there's anything outside of Satan that prevents him from repenting. What we are simply affirming is that Satan will never do what he doesn't want to do. 
he has no inclination to repent. He has no love for God. He has no love for God's truth. Therefore, he will never in a billion years do that which is contrary to his nature. Now, the third question, and you probably know where I'm going with this, is as follows. Can man believe? Can man come to the Lord Jesus Christ? I will quote scripture. It's the safest ground to stand upon. Verse 44. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. Verse 65, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Does that mean man doesn't have free will? No, that's not what we're saying. Those aren't the implications. Man is free to do whatever he wants when he wants it. What's the issue? He never wants God. And so as Paul makes abundantly clear in Romans chapter 3, all have turned aside. Together they have become useless. And he adds, there is no one who seeks after God. No such thing as a seeker-sensitive movement. There are no seekers. There are only runners in the opposite direction. It's God who does the seeking. It's God who does the pursuing. And it is God who does the drawing and the calling. We're running like crazy in the opposite direction, trying to get as far away from God as we possibly can. That is man in his natural state. That is what we are born into. One of the best illustrations I've ever heard given of this was from James Montgomery Boyce. And James Montgomery Boyce, in one of his books, invites his readers to imagine a a big ravenous lion in a cage. And he says, this lion hasn't been fed for two weeks. He's hungry. He's really hungry. And some brave soul quickly opens the door to the cage, throws in a big basket full of fruit and vegetables. Here's the question. Can the lion eat the fruit and vegetables? Physically, he can eat the fruit and vegetables. Absolutely nothing stopping him outside of himself from eating the fruit and vegetables. Will he eat the fruit and vegetables? No. He will die before he will eat the fruit and vegetables. Why? Because he is a carnivore by nature. Oh, friend, we are sinners by nature. Depraved. We have turned aside. We are spoiled. Paul says in Romans 3, it's the idea of rotten fruit. You leave a banana outside. I hear it gets hot here in the summer. I'm looking forward to that. You leave a banana outside on a warm Texas afternoon. And within what? Minutes? What have you got left? Mush. It is spoiled. That's what's going on there in Romans chapter 3. We have turned aside and we are spoiled. Spoiled. And in that state, we will never seek for God. And that's why the Lord Jesus makes it so clear in this chapter. No man, no man comes to me. Not because he lacks free will. No man comes to me. Why? Because nobody wants to. Man is so overrun with his sin that if he is left to himself, he will go to hell. Before he will turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Hence the need for what? 
the effectual call. Hence the need for God's sovereign grace. Hence the need for the Father's drawing, the Father's calling. And this brings us to the second point I want to make, the nature of this effectual call. What is it like? I want to share with you three features of the effectual call. They all come out of verse 45 in our chapter in John chapter 6. Flip back and follow along as I read that verse 4. As verse 45, it is written in the prophets. Where is it written? It's Isaiah 54. It is written in the prophets. And they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. There you have it. Let me read it again for you. They will all be taught by God. The original context, Isaiah 54, makes it clear that it is God's children who will be taught by God. And everyone who hears this teaching, everyone who learns God's teaching, what will they do? They will come to me. That's what we have in Matthew 16 with the Lord, with the Lord Jesus and Peter. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Why? Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. Oh, Peter, 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 Peter. Ten million years, you wouldn't have figured this out. No, 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 no. Blessed are you, Peter, because my Father in heaven revealed this to you. You see, Peter was taught by God. Peter learned from the Father. And therefore, Peter came to the Lord Jesus. Three features of this call that arise from verse 45. The first is this. Christ makes it clear that this call is personal. It is to individuals. It is to God's children. That it is them who hear. It is them that learn. And as a result, they come. Why is it that the gospel is preached? And some person over here is left weeping, just in a state beside themselves, while some someone else over here has fallen asleep. Why is that? Why is it that one person over here just had an out-of-body experience as they heard God's Word, and somebody else over here is completely indifferent, maybe even belligerent at what they've heard? Why is it that one person is moved to the very core of their being, while another is just as dead as a doorknob, just untouched, unmoved, unaffected? It is because the call is personal. The call is individual. Secondly, the call is eternal, everyone, internal, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father. This is a hearing, this is a learning from God that is not merely a hearing and learning with the ear, but with the soul. Listen to these texts. The first is Luke 24, the words of the Lord Jesus. These are the words that I spoke to you. He's refer- speaking to his disciples. These are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. There's verbal teaching. They hear it with the ear. But listen to this next phrase. Then he opened their minds to understand the scripture. Or listen to this in Acts 16 verse 14. Luke gives the account. One who heard us, that is Paul preaching was a woman named Lydia. There's the general call. She heard it. She heard the preaching of God's word by the preacher. She heard it with her ear. Next phrase. 
The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. That is the effectual call. It is an an internal call which goes beyond the human ear, touches the soul, illuminates the mind, softens the heart so that the light goes on. And we see what we have never seen before. And all of a sudden we love what we most certainly never loved before. And all of a sudden we believe what we rejected before. The third mark of this call, the nature of this call in verse 45 is this. It is irresistible. It is written in the prophets. I'm just reading from verse 45. They will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. They are irresistibly drawn. Because when the Spirit of God accompanies the preaching of the Word of God and descends upon the soul in power, it cultivates a longing for spiritual things and there is an enjoyment, there is a savoring, there is a taste of the sweetness that is inherent to God's truth. Something that was never there before. But when it is seen, the soul can't help but respond. As he's overwhelmed, overwhelmed by the goodness and greatness of God as revealed in the gospel. Everyone who hears and learns from the Father comes to me. We hear the Lord Jesus say to the demon, be quiet. And the Lord, Je- the, the demon was quiet. We hear the Lord Jesus say to the leper, be cleansed. And the leper was cleansed. We hear Christ declare to the paralytic, get up. He gets up, no questions asked. We hear him declare to the storm, hush, be still. And it was still. We hear him declare to the deaf, be opened. And their ears were opened. And we hear him cry at the tomb of dead Lazarus, come forth. And he came forth. And the Lord Jesus Christ stands at the soul of that one dead in his trespasses and sins and cries, come forth. And when that cry is heard in the inner recesses of the soul, when that teaching, that learning, that hearing has taken place, that individual comes to me. It is irresistible. So the Lord Jesus declares later in John's gospel, John 10, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. The third feature of this call has to do with the recipients of the effectual call. Look with me now, at verses 37 through 39. The recipients of the effectual call. All, verse 37, words of the Lord Jesus. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
And verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And so we ask ourselves, who are the recipients of this call? It is all those whom the Father has given to the Son. That takes us back into the realms of Ephesians chapter 1, which we've been looking at in our care groups. And I, I invite you this morning to, to, to get beyond, get beyond the affairs of this past week. Get beyond the flu and the headache and everything else. Get beyond everything else that is on your mind and enter into the realm of the mystery of God's plan as it is unfolded in Ephesians chapter 1. There Paul writes and he declares that before the foundation of the world, God chose us in Christ. He chose us in Christ and then it was Christ himself, the Son of God, who entered time as a man, securing redemption on behalf of all those who have been chosen in him. And then it is the Spirit of God who is sent forth, sealing all those whom the Father has chosen before the foundation of the world, all those for whom Christ has shed His blood. The Spirit now comes forth, sealing them, uniting them with their risen Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And three times in that passage, Paul reminds us, he makes it so clear that all this happens. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace. You see, God has a people. Christ has a church. Christ has a bride. All those who have been given to him. And we have this absolute certainty that all the Father has given to the Son will come to the Son. And he says in verse 39, I will lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. There are the recipients. Those are the recipients of the effectual call. Now, I've gone through those three points hurriedly, and I know, believe me, I know, what we have talked about and what we have considered in these verses, they they raise a number of questions. They do. I, I I I won't try to sidestep that and pretend otherwise. They raise a number of troubling questions. But, but, but with, the, with these three features of this call in mind, what, what, what I ask us to do this morning, given, given what God's Word declares in this chapter, is to consider and to focus upon the implications of this call. That if we grasp this, If we grasp what Christ is making so clear, he's unfolding and unpacking in this chapter, our lives cannot remain the same. Firstly, we should, we should undoubtedly be challenged by what we have heard this morning. Challenged. Peter writes in his second epistle, chapter 1, verse 10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. Make your calling and election sure. Make sure, make sure that my profession in the Lord Jesus Christ is firmly rooted, firmly anchored in Christ alone, and that in the last day I won't be proven to be, as Judas was, a devil numbered among the twelve. 
But to make my calling and election sure, how? I don't become overly introspective. There's a huge difference between self-examination and introspection. But Scripture repeatedly calls upon us to examine ourselves. How? In the light of Scripture. Praying that the Spirit of God would impress the reality of our faith upon us. John's Gospel is written, why? So that we may believe. John's first epistle is written, why? So that we might know we have believed. And if you want to know if you've believed or not, read John's first epistle. And there John lays out for us so clearly the marks of a true believer. The marks of true saving faith. I appreciate so much what John Flavel writes in this regard. He says, a sweeter sign. Oh, a sweeter sign of your hearing Christ's voice can hardly be found in a soul of man than restless longing to be with Christ. Do you long to be with Christ? I mean, is that your heart's desire? Is He the the, the focus of your affections? That longing to be with Christ in the state of perfect freedom from sin and from the and the full fruition and the enjoyment of the full fruition of the beloved and blessed Jesus. Oh, the effectual call, it should challenge us. Secondly, it should motivate us. Paul writes in Ephesians 4, 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. I have been called by God to be holy and blameless before Him. I have been purchased with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I have been sealed with the Holy Spirit who now cleanses me and purifies me by the washing of water with the Word. I am now called upon to walk in a manner that is worthy of this calling. I know it doesn't depend on me. I know ultimately depends upon God's grace and the Spirit of God working in me. But just like the farmer sows his seed, knowing that it is ultimately God who must bless and give the increase, so too we discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness, knowing that in the final analysis, it is God who must bless. And it is God who must impart grace. And it is God who must work by His Spirit. But all those in whom the Spirit of God is working, when they hear this admonition, walk in a manner Worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Cannot help but respond. It's a heartfelt desire despite two steps forward, one step back. And despite our daily struggles and despite our disappointments and despite those sins we've been wrestling with for two months, two years, 20 years, 25 years. We have this longing that cannot be quenched within us. To be like Christ. To put off sin. And to put on holiness. The third result of the effectual call should be as follows. It should comfort us. We should take great comfort from it. Look again at verse 39 of chapter 6. And this is the will of God who sent me. What is God's will? That I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. I submit to you this morning that God gets what he wants. and That none are lost. I take such comfort from that. I take such encouragement from that. As I, as I reflect 
on life, as I reflect on the years gone by, I think on the struggles and the disappointments. I think on those besetting sins that I struggle with as much today as I did in the day God saved me. And I begin to doubt and look at myself and wonder how could God ever love someone like me? How is What is there in me that could possibly merit this great salvation? What is there about me that will see me through to the end? And then I'm reminded of what? It never depended on me. It doesn't depend on me and it never will depend on me. That from the moment of salvation through to the culmination of salvation, it depends on the grace of God alone. And God's love for me is not contingent upon anything about me. God's love for me is the love he has for his beloved. That's a wondrous truth. That the love God loves me with. It isn't evoked or provoked by anything about me. It's not that God looks at me and says, well, he's particularly cute and cuddly. Or or there's something that I find rather endearing. Or there's something that draws me to him. I have just this soft, warm, fuzzy feeling whenever I think about him. No, it is the love of the triune God for himself. It is the love that the Father has for the Son, the Son has for the Father, that when we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, we are brought into the communion of this triune love, and we are loved of God in the Beloved. And all those whom the Father has given to the Son will come to Him, and Christ declares it in no uncertain terms, I won't lose any. It's impossible. Why? Because it doesn't depend on them. It depends on the power of Almighty God. And it rests upon God's unquenchable love for us in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know about you. I find that kind of encouraging. Took a step forward Monday, two steps back Tuesday. Recovered Wednesday, took another step forward back a couple and that's my week in and my week out. Oh, what what why would God love me and how 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 am I ever going to last? Get over yourself, Stephen. And look to the Lord Jesus Christ. And understand and latch on to this verse and Christ's promise with all you are worth and never let go. Verse 39. This is the will of God. This is his will, the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Fourthly, I find the effectual call to be rather humbling. If you struggle with humility, struggle with pride, and I suggest to you that you do, and I do, we all do, it's the first sin we put on and it is the last sin we will take off. There is no growth in humility apart from the truths which we have pondered this morning. Because it is the, it's this truth of God's sovereign grace toward us that puts us in our place. And helps us to understand who we are. And to whom we owe this great salvation. It leads Paul to ask in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have? That you did not receive. 
Name it right now. What do you have that you did not receive? Nothing. Then pray tell. Why the pride? It's all a gift. It all flows from the fountain of God's grace. Octavius Winslow wrote many years ago, Christian, oh Christian, the only thing that makes you differ from the vilest being that pollutes the earth or from the darkest fiend that gnaws its chains in hell is the free grace of God. But for the grace of God, There go I, merrily on my way toward hell. Oh, the sovereign grace of God toward a sinner such as myself. What do you have that you did not receive? The fifth effect, fifth implication is as follows. We should be encouraged, encouraged by the effectual call. As a preacher, my only encouragement is the effectual call. Sunday after Sunday, sermon after sermon, wondering, hoping, praying, any fruit, any effect, any impact, I would go crazy apart from this truth of the effectual call that it is in God's hands. That unsaved spouse, that unsaved friend that we've been witnessing to for years, thinking to ourselves, well, if I could just be more convincing, if I was just better versed in apologetics, if I could just come up with a thousand and one reasons, if, if I, 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 I could just do this. Those going over, our, our, our friends going, going to Russia, five years there, six years there, seven years there, no convert, no fruit. Oh, well, what, what am I doing wrong? What, what, what's wrong with my ministry? What should I be changing? And, 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 the, and the quagmire we can get ourselves into when it comes to evangelism and the proclamation of the gospel and the invitation, whosoever will may come. But how liberating, how liberating to simply stand or sit or be wherever God places us. Open God's word. Declare it as it is, proclaim his truth, and leave the results with God. David Livingston, known more for his geographical discoveries and whatnot than for his missionary service, but as he reflected on his years in Africa, he penned the following. Listen to this. Oh, a good and attentive audience as I preached. But immediately after the service, the chief retired into a hut to drink beer. No effect. But a minister, a minister who had not seen so much pioneer service as I have done, would have been shocked to see so little effect produced by an earnest discourse concerning judgment. But time must be given to allow the truth to sink into the dark mind and produce its effect. The earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. That is enough. We can afford to work in faith. For omnipotence is pledged to fulfill the promise. I find that extremely encouraging. And the last implication is as follows. As we ponder the effectual call, we should be overwhelmed. Completely overwhelmed. Knowing the condition we're in as sinners. Knowing the condition of human nature. 
We revel in the knowledge that God saves us by His sovereign good pleasure and for the praise of His glorious grace. Isaac Watts wrote centuries ago, With joyful hearts we raise our song as those who have been blessed. Each one thus cries with thankful tongue, Lord, why am I a guest? Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? Twas the same love that spread the feast that sweetly forced us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin.